One thing about speaking to Anglicans is that they tell you what to speak. They give you their passage. You don't get to choose it. You all don't realize that nobody else does that. <laughs> I wouldn't have chosen this passage. <laughs> but the other thing about speaking to Anglicans is that I have always, always, always been so blessed by putting my head into passages that I wouldn't have chosen. So thank you for that blessing. Uh, over the years, I have done a few things with you guys, and I've just always appreciated it. First under Jan's leadership and now under Kim's. And I just have to say, you guys are women twice blessed. Twice blessed by God's work in these women. And so I want to publicly just say um, how amazed I am at their godliness and all that they do, the way they approach everything and how they pray for you and want, want you so to know our Lord deeper and better. In spite of that, they asked me here today. So about... 16, oh, oh, by the way, my passage starts at verse 16, so I'm going to skip those first 15, um, and we're going to jump in at uh, verse 16. But before I do, I want to tell you a little story that I think relates to the whole thing, really. Um, about 16 years ago, Phil and I watched a very dear friend and pastor um, suffer um, and die during this sobering time. His wife, who happens to be Kathleen Nielsen, I know she's done some things here, it happens to be her sister. Um, she just went to him and just said, Rodney, I, I don't understand this. Uh, we have given our whole lives to following Jesus, to serving his church and his kingdom, and there is still so much to do. I just don't get it. Have, what is it? Have we sinned? Bottom line, and this was her lowest point, does God even love us? Does God even love us? And Rodney, in the midst of his pain, reached out and said, Oh, Lizzie, yes, he does love us. Remember the cross. Remember the cross, Lizzie. I'm sure it was that phrase that helped her through her own death only eight years later. Remember the cross. They needed wisdom. They needed endurance. And they needed courage in the difficult mission that Jesus had placed before them. Like many of life's situations that God takes us through to accomplish his mission through us and to draw us closer to himself, Jesus is calling his disciples in this passage to a treacherous one. It's not yet time to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matter of fact, Jesus says that explicitly in verses 5 and 6 for them not to go yet to the Gentiles or even to the Samaritans. They're to go to Israel, their own country, their own kindred, where they are known, and where their identity is there as a Jew. Before the people they know and love, they are going to be hated and rejected. Jesus makes no pretense 
And in fact, if they don't get it in these words of our passage in verse 34, right after our passage, Jesus makes it even clearer. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A disciple of his will be hated, betrayed, ostracized in the most monstrous way by even his children and his brothers who will deliver some of them to death. But underneath it all, they are to remember that the Father values them. Their focus can't yet be the cross at this point. That's our treasure. But Jesus is proclaiming God's love for them as their comfort, in order to comfort and to motivate them for their mission. Though separated by time, circumstance, and history, the call is the same for us today. So this passage is about discipleship, and that is what we are, disciples. We're here this morning because we're disciples of Jesus Christ. So as we wade into this passage, I want us to keep in mind this background to the horror of it all. God's greatest show of his love and his value for us, remember the cross. We'll see that being a disciple is dangerous, so we need to focus. And Jesus outlines the dangers of, as he outlines the dangers, he also outlines where their focus needs to be. One is is wisdom, one is endurance, and the third one is courage. Surprise, surprise, a talk with three points. Let's start with verse 16 and look at the animals. Not only was their mission to the lost sheep of Israel at this point, but they themselves would be sheep in the midst of wolves. I don't know if you've seen any of these nature shows. I'm sure you have. But what wolves do to their prey is not pretty. Sheep are particularly vulnerable because they're a domesticated animal. They don't live with their predators, so they don't learn the dangers. They don't learn the ways to evade things. Sheep, in their passivity, are incredibly vulnerable. Since the disciples are like them, they're in a dangerous position. So Jesus uses two other animals here to illustrate what they must be like. They must be a combination of two very different animals, serpents and doves, or, in other words, wise as snakes, innocent as pigeons. So what does this mean, wisdom and innocence? First of all, the word for wisdom here is not sophos, as it often is. Uh, Sophos focuses a little bit more on knowledge and just smarts, basically. The word um, here is one that is called phronimos. It focuses more on deep insight. It's a call to wisdom in the sense of deep insight. They are going to need insight to know their vulnerability as sheep among wolves. Matthew, in the first verses of this chapter, verses 1 and 2, names all the disciples. He's sort of introducing the disciples. And he gives, and he says, John, the brother of so-and-so. You know, it's either the brother of or the father of, except for two of them. Two of them. One, Judas, 
He's described as the one who who betrayed Jesus. And two, does anybody see it? Matthew, the tax gatherer. The only two that are pulled out of this lineup and defined not necessarily by their relationships, but defined by their shame. Judas, the one who betrayed Christ, and Matthew, the tax gatherer. I think this is where Matthew, the writer of this book, enters wisdom. Matthew was a tax gatherer. He knew his weakness. He knew his sin. And this knowledge was his focus on wisdom. Wisdom to know that he would never think that he was above it all. Wisdom to know that he would never be beyond the need for God's redemptive help. Wise as snakes, innocent as pigeons. At first glance, these two animals seem polar opposites. But the word innocence here doesn't mean unaware, like a child would mean unaware, which is what I thought it meant for a long time until I started studying this for you. It seems to be innocent in the sense of purity, unmixed or pure. Matthew knew that this insight was bound to purity. To follow Jesus, he would have to leave his heinous job of tax gathering and like Zacchaeus, walk behind Jesus. The Apostle Paul also exemplified in Acts 16, and if we had the time, I would read it to you. It's so incredible how in that passage it gives us examples of wisdom or insight and purity. It starts off with Paul uh, and Timothy going to the churches, Paul realizing that if Timothy, as a Greek and uncircumcised, shows up in the synagogues, then they're not going to be listened to. So what do he do? Paul circumcised Timothy. Now, that was a whole lot easier for Paul than Timothy. <laughs> That's for sure. But it was wise It was a wise thing to do because then the chapter goes on and talks about how there was an open door to them in the churches. Then the Holy Spirit forbids them to go to Asia in Acts 16. And the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them to go to Bithynia. We don't know how this was done, whether there were physical roadblocks or they interpreted things as God's action or whether they just knew in prayer what to do. But the wisdom here is that they were listening to God. When he forbid, they didn't go in. And when he allowed, they went, seeking him out and focusing on his direction. Very wise. The only time in this chapter that you get any kind of sense that Paul was acting on his own wisdom and not God's is when he got annoyed at the slave girl. Remember that? She had a spirit of divination, and she was going around behind him saying, listen to these men because they have the way of salvation, which sounds like a really good thing to say, unless she's saying it over and over and over and in a way undermining their message because of her yelling and shouting at them. So Paul just be gone. He throws that demon out. That's the only time in that passage that it says he moved according to something other than God's will. And we don't know here, because I don't want to argue from silence, but it says Paul was annoyed and threw the demon out. And he landed up in prison. 
with Silas, okay? Not necessarily a wise move on his part, but what then follows in that chapter is one of the best examples of innocence, which is why I wanted you all to hear this. What he then does as he's sitting there thrown in prison with Silas, they start a hymn sing. It's midnight, and it said the other prisoners were listening. Or probably wishing they'd shut up, but doesn't say that. It just says they were listening. And then there's an earthquake. All the doors open. What would you expect? But all the prisoners would leave, but they didn't. They remained innocent. They didn't step into guilt and run away. And when the jailer started to kill himself, Paul says, wait, wait, we're here, which was incredible. And you can imagine an incredible witness to that jailer. His life was saved because the prisoners cared, because the prisoners remained pure. And it goes on, he came to Christ and his whole, house, his whole household. And then the chapter ends with Paul reminding the Romans that he was a Roman citizen. <laughs> wisdom, wisdom. So you get this, this interplay of wisdom and innocence, wisdom and innocence. Okay, wise as a serpent, innocent as doves. When we face persecutions that we will face, because our values are so different from those around us, God will give us wisdom and innocence. Both will be powerful, through the, though the trial may be horrific. Both will enable us, as disciples of Christ, to do the work of a disciple and focus on his kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is telling the truth, equipping them for the battles ahead, and he's pointing out that they will need to focus not only wisdom informed by innocence, but also on endurance. And that's the second thing here. Let's look at endurance. We find this in verses 21 to 23. Look first at verse 22. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, if you have the NIV, it says stands firm. But most of the others use the word endure. Standing firm is the right idea of endurance. But rather than a movement forward, like perseverance suggests, they are to hold their ground. They are enduring in spite of opposition. Now, fleeing to another city, as Jesus suggests in verse 23, doesn't sound at first like standing firm. Quite the opposite. But Jesus, I believe, is talking about fleeing with the message and not being silenced. Go on to the next town if they're not listening to you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. When they don't listen to you, keep preaching where they will. That's what Jesus is concerned about. They should focus on enduring their persecutors' taunts, but continuing their mission. One town won't listen, flee to the next. And even then, the task won't be finished until the Son of Man comes. 
And that was really true at this point. They were just beginning with proclaiming the kingdom of God. The task won't be finished until the Son of Man comes, ultimately. I don't know if exactly what Jesus meant by saying that, but I think it's a reference to his second coming. Because the task is still not finished. There's more cities and more cities of people that need to hear about Jesus. Now, why are they asked to endure endure all these hardships? Why are we asked to endure hardships as well? Well, look at verse 18. There's a bigger picture going on. And this is interesting because he's just said, don't go to the Gentiles. But he says this, on my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. In this mission, they are to go to the lost sheep of Israel. But here, Jesus is talking about the Gentiles. So we can only assume that Jesus is speaking in a future sense here. He's gotten broader, and when he does that, he's including all of us as his disciples. They and we are players in a much, much bigger story. One that we don't really know all the ins and outs of, even post-resurrection. They didn't know what proclaiming God's kingdom was. They may have thought that it was political at this point. They just had no idea of how important this was or of how dangerous their message was. And I don't think that we are all aware of the battles going around us either, of the wolves that we're in the midst of. Ephesians 6 tells us this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And listen to this, And against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We can't even see that. It's hard to even imagine it. We don't know, really, what this battle is all about. It's far beyond us. But what we are told is that we are to be witnesses for God, royal ambassadors to mankind. This is future. Our battle line is well. We are called before the world to speak words. Our endurance will present something vital that God wants the world to have, his witnesses to his truth. They might not listen to us, but that's not our task to get them to listen. Our task is to endure the taunts and continue speaking his words to our world, whether by our lives, which sometimes can be the loudest words, especially when purity is involved, or out of our mouths where wisdom is involved. It's important to him, but we need to take his word for that because the battle is often invisible. Like with Job, there's a bigger picture going on. Job never knew about the heavenly council where Satan came and charged God with not having any integrity, basically. Job was asked to suffer to defend the integrity of God Almighty, and he hadn't the slightest idea of that. Nor did his friends, obviously. 
not even to his death did he know. And at the end of the book of Job, which I think is one of the most powerful books in the whole Bible for this reason, God doesn't answer why. Not even to Job. But he gives him a fresh vision of himself so that he can endure. Much like Rodney gave Liz by reminding her of the cross. Jesus is doing the same thing here, telling us of what will happen, but not why. It's a call to trust. And may we say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, Jesus offers comfort. In verse 22, he says, Though the suffering is sure, the end of the battle is clear, basically. At the end of the battle, though we lose our very lives, he says, we will be saved. That's the promise to the believer. God requires their life, their full devotion, their absolute loyalty to endure. Not in order to become a disciple but to walk the path of one. Will we trust him? Will we endure in a culture that is changing from their Judeo-Christian values faster than our heads can spin? Will we stand and say in the light the things that make us look bigoted and will invite hate? This passage is all too relevant to where we stand today in our culture. Yes, we are sheep in the midst of wolves, and we better wake up and see it. Our enemies may end up being members of our own household. And the hardest is that household can also be the church. We must focus on being wise and pure, and we must endure. Why? Because it's the only hope of the world A battle bigger than we can know, even though we know more than they did. We still cannot see what we are wrestling against. Yet we were chosen to be his witnesses. And we must be unstoppable and endure to the end. But what we also cannot see is his spirit within us. And that spirit is equal to this task. It is now obvious the third thing that we need that's coming out of this passage. I think it's obvious we need it for wisdom and for um, innocence. We need it for endurance, and that would be courage. Focus on courage. Courage helps you keep your head when you need wisdom, and courage helps us to stand our ground. Now, the opposite of courage is fear. There are things to fear and things not to fear in this passage, coming out of this passage. So let's look at the do not fears. One of them comes right after verses 24 and 25, where he illustrates that a student is not above his teacher, though many may not know that, um, nor a slave over his master. They will not be over him, and they will not escape persecution. Now, remember... They're probably not realizing what at all Jesus is actually meaning by his own persecution at this point. They will be identified with him and they will be treated like him. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, Jesus says, how much more the members of his household. 
There is no health and wealth gospel here. Let me say that again. The health and wealth gospel is not what Jesus presented. It's anti-Christian. It's anti-everything he says. Jesus is basically saying, follow me and your world will hate you as it hated me. You're going to suffer. But be courageous. There's nothing hidden that won't be revealed in verse 26. Someday it will be clear even to your persecutors. All is under the eyes of a just God and they won't get away with it, basically. And you will be rewarded. But as it goes on in verse 27, now is the time for proclamation. Then he says, do not fear again in verse 28. But here he brings the reality home to them in saying whom to fear. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Fear him rather who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I don't know if you heard this in the English. Um, it's, it's the same as in the Greek when it says those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. And then he reverses soul and body in the next phrase. He says, but fear him who's able to destroy both soul. You would have a real emphasis on that in Greek because the pulls that word forward. And that's what that language, that's how they emphasize something. This one is able to destroy your soul. Very significant. Fear the one. Men can only destroy your body. But fear the one who can destroy your very soul. And that is God. Now, is Jesus using a fear tactic here? I don't think so. I think he's just proclaiming reality. Jesus is putting God's power into perspective for them. When we lived in England, I had a friend whose, whose child took some metal scissors. He's about three years old, and he decided to stick it into an electrical socket. Now, that's 220 volts over there, right? It blew the scissors halfway across the room, and it charred the child's hand. Now, would that have been a fear tactic? For that mother to have said, don't do that because there's electricity in that wall. You can't see it, but it's powerful. No, that wouldn't be a fear tactic. That'd just be presenting reality. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's not trying to say, okay, be, be afraid of God. He's basically saying, by the way, you might be afraid of men, but they're nothing. They can do nothing to you compared to what the Father can do. Simply put, fear God, not men. In verse 32 and 33, he clarifies how he and the Father will work at the judgment. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now, we know that Peter made this mistake, right? He denied Jesus three times. And he was not damned. <laughs> So we must think that what Jesus is talking about here is a whole lot deeper than just acknowledging Jesus once or denying him three times. And the range of meaning of this word acknowledge is the word claim, and that makes it a little bit easier for me to understand. This is about claiming Christ 
as your own and about disowning him in an ultimate sense. So the way the universe works, says Jesus, is that those who claim him as their own encourage and courageously make that claim before men, as you all do every time you go to church and your neighbors watch, Jesus himself will complete that action by courageously claiming us, even the likes of us, as his own before the Father. We do this when we join the church or get confirmed. We make our claim, and at the judgment, he will complete that and claim us as his. But your fear of men will affect the opposite. If you want to know how to kill your soul, refuse to claim me before men. Refuse to live for me. Refuse to speak for me. Refuse to identify with me. Refuse to be my disciple. Fear him who can destroy your soul. Don't fool yourself. Your choices here matter. They matter greatly. And that is a universal reality. It's fact. We are following someone who can destroy us. Now, I don't particularly like these verses, but that does not change the truth of them. And I guess the truth of them highlights even more the wonder of why such a powerful God would save us. In the category of do not fear is another statement in verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you are to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, this word for fear is a little bit different. This is more in the area of anxiety or worry and concern rather than sheer terror. But I include it here because it draws comfort from Jesus in the same way. And you'll see in a minute what I mean. Jesus says, don't be anxious about what you are to say. Now, Jesus has just warned them about incredible physical peril. Sheep among wolves, you'll be handed over to the courts, flogged and killed by your families. But he tells them to be courageous because their words will be given to them, that the Father will speak for them in horrible situations. Now, I don't know about you, but it wouldn't be my words I'd be worried about at this point if I was listening to him. <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting there going, oh, what am I going to say? I would be sitting there saying, how am I going to get out of this? <laughs> I would want Jesus to say, don't worry, because the Father's kind of like Obi-Wan. And as you come up to the gates, he will, he will say, these are not the droids that you seek, you know, and, and we'll escape it. We'll get out of that, of that persecution. But Jesus doesn't. He focuses on words. Why words? Why the tongue? Well, perhaps it is the tongue that's at most peril of being faithless in these situations. Historically, in most cases, persecutors would ask Christians to denounce Christ, and if they would, they would be saved. But if their words are relentlessly holding to Christ, they may be killed. But ironically, they'll be saved. Christianity was being spread through the courage of these men and women, our brothers and sisters of history. Acts is full of this. 
over and over again, it was their words that got these first disciples in trouble. They were, as verse 32 and, uh, 32 and 33 say, confessing Jesus or acknowledging Jesus before men. That was their task. Peter and John were the first ones to get imprisoned after the resurrection. And when they let them go, these are the, these, this is what the council said to them, and I quote, But in order that it, meaning this new faith in Jesus, may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Words. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Why? Because the Father gave them words. Lots of words. They knew it. And they knew their mission was from God Almighty. They were ambassadors for him. And their words were precious to him and to them. It took courage to speak and live the words of a disciple of Jesus. In all of these commands to fear and embrace courage, to leave fear and embrace courage, note how Jesus inserts the motivation or the fundamental truth that they are to be emboldened by. That is to say that the Father, this fearsome, can-kill-your-soul being, loves them. He gives them words and he doesn't leave them. He will actually, by his spirit, be in you speaking. And in the middle of the discord about God's power to throw them in hell, Jesus stops and reminds them of little sparrows. Verse 31, don't fear, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then he goes on to what's not my bald husband's favorite verse, the very hairs of your head are numbered. He's like, big deal. (laughs) But for many of us, it is. A sparrow valued by a powerful God. I saw an illustration of this when I was last down with Duncan and Jane, our youngest son and his wife, and they have three little ones. And the three-year-old is just hilarious to me. All three of them are hilarious. But little James could hardly eat because I had told him that he could watch Peppa Pig after lunch. So he rushes through that, and I get the, you know, computer all set up with Peppa Pig, and I go to sit down with him, and I'm like, come on, let's watch Peppa Pig. And so he, he nestles in, and, and we start it, and then he starts going, no, no. And I was like, what? And he goes, no. I said, you want me to leave? He goes, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, all right. I mean, I could give you cookies, milk, whatever, but never mind. All right, I'll leave. So the next day, I was a little bit wiser. When it came time to watch Peppa Pig, I uh, I set it up, and I wasn't going to be, you know, present, unasked, so I, I got out of the way. And then James leaves the room, and then he comes back. And I see him with his four little stuffed animals, his dinosaur, two dogs, and a cat. 
and he sets him up in a line right in front of the computer, and he sits himself right behind him, and he goes, yeah, I'm ready. Okay? Now, first of all, I'm thinking, you want to watch with them and not me? But on the other hand, I started thinking about this. For some reason, James has an inexplicable tie to these stuffed animals. He loves them dearly. And he wanted them to watch Peppa Pig with him. He had them lined up. I took a picture of it because it was just so cute. But why? Why does he value those stuffed animals? Well, he just does. That's who James is. And I think that's a great example of why. Why does God love us? I don't know. He just does. Why? It makes no sense. We are like stuffed animals. We can give nothing back. We can't get cookies and milk. (laughs) But God loves us. Even to the very hairs on our head, he values us so much. And that is why we listen to these words. That is why we want wisdom. That is why we want endurance and courage. Because though our mission is only partly understood now, it will all be clear in the end. And it will be good because we are loved by a God who, though he can destroy our very soul, loves us more deeply and thoroughly than we can even imagine. I heard a line out of a Sherlock episode that just haunted me. (laughs) It made me think about the love of God and Jesus' demonstration of it on the cross. It was when Sherlock was laboring under a heavy load of guilt because a really good friend of his had jumped in front of him and taken a bullet for him and died. And her husband had basically not forgiven Sherlock for it. And when her husband comes to the realization that this wasn't Sherlock's fault, this is the conversation between him and Sherlock that happened. Her husband, you didn't kill her, Sherlock. She made a choice to save your life. You didn't make her do it. Nobody could make her do anything. You did not kill her. Then Sherlock, in a slow voice, answered, In saving my life, she conferred a value on it. It is a currency I do not know how to spend. What a brilliant line. Listen to these words again and think of Jesus. In saving my life, He conferred a value on it. It is a currency I do not know how to spend. But for us, Jesus made it very clear how to spend the currency of our valued life. But it is something he never intended us to bear alone. That's why he said in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's a costly mission, a dangerous one. It requires focus with wisdom, endurance, and courage on things we cannot see, but we are told are true. Jesus does not hide the truth. He's honest with, with us, and we, like them, venture in. Why? Because our lives are valued. Remember the cross, Lizzie. Remember the cross and never forget it. Amen.